either in the building or whether we're joining together online. So we're going to go ahead and get into the message. And if this is your first time with us this morning, uh, over the past couple of months, uh, we have been in a series on the book of Revelation uh, called God Wins. And so we now come to the section and what I'm going to be doing um, we're a part of the series where I'm going to conclude the series throughout the rest of the month of October, and I'm going to conclude it by attempting to answer some of the questions that some of you have sent in surrounding all of the wild and crazy imagery that you see throughout the book of Revelation. So we're going to spend the next few weeks wrapping this up, me attempting to answer some very difficult questions, and uh, this morning we come to chapter 13. The book of Revelation, which I would say is arguably one of the most well-known, probably the most famous chapters of the entire book of Revelation. And over the years, its content has inspired movies like this one. First slide. The Omen. How many of you have ever seen The Omen before? Feel this here. I don't know if you can see the tagline, but it says... Good morning! You're all one day closer to the end of the world. The omen. You've been warned. <laughs> I saw this for the first time when I was like, hey, it scared the madoobies out of me, I must be honest. So there's a lot of movies that are influenced by what we're going to see in the content in Revelation 13. And then, if you grew up in the 80s like I did, then you will know. I, I, I can't tell you how many bands like this one, heavy metal bands. Next slide. Heavy metal bands like this, like Iron Maiden, borrowed a lot of their lyrical contents in album covers from Revelation 13, the number of the beast. And so what we're going to do this week and next week, we're going to look at Revelation 13. I'm going to start it this week. We're going to conclude the chapter next week. And over the course of the next two weeks, I hope to answer two questions. The first question is, who or what is the beast that we see mentioned in Revelation 13? And then what is the meaning of the beast number, which is 666? Now, next week, I'm going to get into the meaning of 666. But today, I want to attempt to shed some light on who or what is the beast of Revelation. And so if you have your Bibles here, if you have your Bibles at home, Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 today. So if you want to go ahead and put up that scripture. Here's what we read. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. John goes on. One of its heads seems to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. He goes on. And then they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? John goes on. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. John goes on. And authority was given 
given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who is slain. He goes on. The authority was given it over every tribe and people and language. I think we just read that. No. It, it, authority was given over every, over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose names has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb. We did just read that this typo was slain. Here is a call for in the endurance and faith of the saints. Heavenly Father, as we get into your word here this morning, Lord, I pray that you would just give us revelation uh, of who this beast is, this enemy. Uh, as the people of God, we all have an enemy that works to wage war against us. And it's good for us to know who we're fighting against and who we are waging war and is waging war against us. So, Father, I pray as we take a look at our enemy, again, I just pray for revelation. Father, I also pray for encouragement. That even though we look at these passages in 13, there's some difficult and hard things to, to contend with. But at the same time, as, as we've entitled this, this series, God wins. Even in the midst of the struggles and the difficulties and the battles that we face, yeah. we still win. Yeah. And we win because yeah. you win. So I pray that again, as we look at these difficult passages, that you would help us to keep that in mind. And we pray, we ask these things in the name of your beloved Son and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Now, as I just mentioned, this passage is arguably the, the most well-known passage in all of the book of Revelation. It is also considered to be one of the most controversial uh, passages and chapters as well. I consider it to be also one of the most fascinating chapters in Revelation. And the reason for that is this, is again, who or what is this mysterious and scary beast that we see John having a vision of and then writing down about? Is this beast the Antichrist? Some will say yes. Is, 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 is there more than one Antichrist? Is John describing someone or something here that is past, in the past history, is John describing someone or something that is present with us here today? Is John describing someone or something that is out there in the future, future tense, or is it a combination of all three? Is John, when he talks about this beast, is he describing someone or something that was past, that is today, that is present, and will also come at some point in the future? That's what we're going to try to make sense of today. What is this thing? And also, when is it? Now... To make sense of Revelation 13, we need to take a little step back into chapter 12, and verse 17 in particular. Here's what we read. Then the dragon became furious. Who's the dragon? Satan. Right? The dragon is symbolic of the devil, of Satan. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. Let me say this. This woman is not Mary. You know who this woman is? It's you. It's you. So, Tim, that means you need to get in touch with your feminine side this morning. Us men, we need to get in touch with our feminine side. So this, this woman here, you're going to have to trust me. I don't have time to go and show you why. But this woman here is symbolic and represents you. It represents the church. It represents the people of God in the church of Jesus Christ. So then the dragon, the devil, became furious with the woman, with the church. 
and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, that's the followers of Jesus, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood, the devil, he stood on the sand of the sea. So John sees this, the devil standing on the sand of the sea. And before I go a little bit further, let me just say this. If you've ever wondered why Christians are persecuted and martyred around the world in places like China or North Korea or the Sudan, if you've ever wondered why Christians in Christianity is often made fun of and mocked in our culture, in the entertainment industry, or in the area of academia, we just read why. That's why. Such things are ultimately spiritual battles. And folks, Scripture is very clear. We as Christians in this life, in this time, in this world, our battle is ultimately not against flesh and blood, but it is against spiritual and dark forces. The Bible is very clear. Now, John sets up Revelation chapter 13 with what we just saw in Revelation 12. And describing how this dragon, the devil, makes war and wages war against the people of God. So John concludes chapter 12 with, this, with the devil standing on the sea, or standing on the sand, and the devil calling forth this beast rising up out of the sea. So again, who or what is this beast? Now many, in my opinion, mistakenly think that what we see here going on, that this beast rising up as the devil calls forth this beast out of the sea, that it will represent you know, some future world leader that will rise up on the scene just before the second coming of Jesus Christ. This leader will rule the world, have authority over the world. And demand that people worship him as God, and he will make war on the saints. Now, folks, let me say this. I am not discounting that possibility at all. I'm not saying that there can't be some sort of future antichrist or figure like this coming on the world scene. But at the same time, there's so much more to this image that John is describing than that one particular thing. Now, whoever or whatever this beast is, John is not describing a literal beast coming out of the literal sea, sort of like Godzilla. He's not being literal with his description here, but he is describing something that is very real. Now, we know in the Old Testament that the sea, it's symbolic and it, and it represents to the powers of chaos. Right? The sea represents powers of chaos, and it represents uh, opposing forces, whether that be you know, individuals or systems or nations that oppose and ascribe themselves to bring down the kingdom of God. In fact, you'll find in the Old Testament references to an evil sea monster often called, does anybody want to take a guess? Leviathan. Right. And Leviathan is always symbolic of pagan kingdoms and, and forces that oppose 
God and his people. So here the Apostle John sees coming up out of the chaos, out of the sea. He sees the devil standing on, on the sand and, and the devil calling forth this beast to rise up out of the systems of chaos and, and, and darkness. And this beast, we are told, is empowered by the devil himself. Now, almost every scholar and theologian Regardless of their differences of opinion in regards to how they interpret the book of Revelation, almost every single scholar and theologian will tell you that what we just read in Revelation 13, John's vision of the beast rising up out of the sea, that he is drawing from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, where Daniel also had a vision of a, a, a very wild vision back in the 6th century B.C. of beasts. So I'm going to read this, and I want you to listen. We're going to go to Daniel. We're going to put that scripture up. As we read through this passage, notice the striking similarities of Daniel's vision and then also John's vision in Revelation 13. Here's Daniel speaking. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. He goes on. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of the human was given to it. He goes on. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all of the other former beasts, and it had ten horns. Did you notice any similarity there? No? Did you? Yes, you did. So when Daniel was describing this vision, what he is describing in this vision is he is describing four successive historical empires, pagan kingdoms that sought to oppose and to conquer the people of God and to resist God's kingdom. And most scholars believe that these four beasts, if you want to put that next slide up. That these four beasts that Daniel saw represent these four kingdoms and empires. The lion represents Bab Babylon. The bear represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The leopard with wings represents Greece. And then the terrible beast that we just saw or we read about in Daniel represents Rome. So four successive kingdoms, four successive empires that were contrary to what God was doing and what God wanted to do in and throughout the world through his kingdom. And so with John's vision, he sees this. Now, I don't think this is literally what John saw, 
But again, what you're seeing here, what he saw is a composite. He sees a beast that embodies and encompasses all of the characteristics of the beast that Daniel saw in his vision. And so if I can use this language, John's beasts are a creative composite of, of, of Daniel's beasts. Right? Everything that these four kingdoms that Daniel saw, all of their wickedness, all of their power and their authority to try to go against God's kingdom and being contrary to God and his people. John in his vision, again, sees a composite of all of the characteristics of these former world empires. All combined together into one beast. And this is what leads me to believe that the beast is a symbol, but it is a symbol of something very literal and something very real. Namely, a, a global orchestrated system of satanically inspired evil and deception. And folks, the opposition that we see around the world and have seen around the world for some 2,000 years since the death and the burial and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ is this beast that John saw. Amen. And it manifests itself in a variety of forms and in different ways and at different times since the resurrection of Jesus. It might manifest itself in a political way sometimes. The beast may manifest itself in, in a government at one time. At one time, it may be economic. It might be an ideal or a philosophy. It might be a religion. It might be a specific social persuasion. Whatever the means. If anyone or anything seeks to oppose God and his kingdom and God and his people to ridicule, to destroy, to deceive, to mock, and to lead them away from God and his kingdom, that is the beast. So my point is this, is that I don't think that as we interpret who or what this beast is, that we should just limit it to a certain person or a certain system at some point in the distant future or however close we are to the second point of coming of Jesus Christ. I think that's too limited. And I don't think John is describing something in, in just that limited fashion. I, I say what we're reading here is transcultural and transtemporal. And what I mean by that is this, is that the beast, again, has existed for some 2,000 years. Since Jesus rose, went, and ascended into heaven, it can be an individual you know, manifestation. It might be a collective manifestation. It can be anything and everything that seeks to set itself up in opposition to God and his kingdom and God and his people. It can be an individual person, it can be a principle, it can be a philosophy, a movement, a system. It can be anything and everything that is influenced and empowered by the devil himself that seeks out to destroy God and his church. Amen. So when John wrote the book of Revelation, who or what was the beast? It was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire who sought to persecute and martyr and, and to bring down the Christian church. 
In the fourth century, there was a bishop by the name in the church by the name of Arius who had a lot of influence. And the beast took its form when he used his influence to try to teach and lead people astray in the church by teaching them that Jesus was not really God. That Jesus was not God in the flesh. That Jesus was not equal in substance and in nature to God the Father. The beast can manifest itself in, in postmodern, you know, philosophy and thought and ideals that say stuff like, you know what, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Don't tell me what your truth is. You know, you got your truth, I got my truth, but don't try to put your truth on me. And when you Christians try to sit and say that Jesus is the only way to God and you can only come to God by way of Jesus, man, that is bigoted. That's arrogant. You know, again, the beast is anyone or anything that seeks to deceive and lead God's people astray. The beast is David Koresh. You guys remember him in the Branch Dominions? The beast can manifest itself even inside of the church. Do you remember that story? The Branch Dominions, they actually came out of an orthodox, legit Christian denomination. But then David Koresh started teaching a bunch of heresy, telling everybody in his flock that he was indeed the second coming of Jesus Christ and that they should bow down and worship him. The beast is the Marxist and communist revolution. Amen. That not only denied the existence of the Judeo-Christian God, but also sought to say that the government should take the place of God in an individual's life. Amen. The beast in our day can be the governments of, of China and North Korea that seek to persecute and even kill Christians who live there. Amen. To take away their rights, Amen. religious freedom. No, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. So again, folks, the beast can be anyone or anything that seeks to go against and fight against God's kingdom, deceive God's people, and to bring them down. Let me try to sum it up this way. I like the way John Stott puts it. Good summation of what the beast is. He says this. The beast is not to be identified in its description with any one historical form of its expression or with any one institution aspect of its institutional aspect of its manifestation. In other words, the beast may appear now as Sodom, Egypt, Rome, or even Jerusalem, and may manifest itself as a political power, an economic power, a religious power, or a heresy. This interpretation does not exclude the possibility that there will be a final climactic appearance of the beast in history in a person in a political, religious, or economic system, or in a final totalitarian culture combining all of these. The point is that the beast cannot be limited to either the past or the future. He goes on. The blasphemous names on the beast's heads indicate that he, it, challenges the supremacy and majesty of God by denying and defying the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. 
Whatever person or system, whether political, social, economic, or religious, cooperates with Satan by exalting itself against God's sovereignty and by setting itself up to destroy the followers of Jesus or entices them to become followers of Satan through deception, idolatry, blasphemy, and spiritual adultery embodies the beast of Revelation 13. He goes on. The description of John, the description John gives of the beast from the sea does not describe a mere human political entity such as Rome. Rather, it describes in archetypal language the hideous Satan-backed system of deception and idolatry that may at any time express itself in human systems of various kinds such as Rome. Yet at the same time, John also seems to be saying that this blasphemous blaspheming and blasphemy-producing reality will have a final, intense manifestation. Wow. Wow. So, so again, who or what is this beast? Is it potentially some future system or future individual that will come onto the scene before the end of the world? Possible. But I don't think that we can limit it to that. Again, I think what we just read here, the summation that John Stott gives, I think that that's the beast. It's anyone or anything, any system, any idea or thought or nation or power or influence that seeks to wage war against God and his church. Now, to understand this further, we need to go outside the book of Revelation. And some of you may know that the Apostle John not only wrote the book of Revelation, he not only wrote the gospel that bears his name, but he also wrote three epistles. Let me test you guys here. How many of you guys think, and be honest, how many of you guys would say that the word Antichrist is mentioned in the book of Revelation. How many of you think that you would find that word in the book of Revelation? A few of you. How many of you think that the beast and the Antichrist are mentioned as being the same thing? A few of you. Well, guess what? What's very interesting is that the word Antichrist is nowhere to be found in the book of Revelation. Huh. Not one single place. It's not in one single line in all the chapters. It's not there. And nor is Antichrist and the beast ever mentioned simultaneously together. Now, folks, I'm not saying that the Antichrist and the beast can't be the same thing. But I'm just saying that, one, Antichrist is not mentioned in the book of Revelation, nor is the beast and the Antichrist mentioned together. In, in one passage. So let's now consider these passages from John's epistle. So John says this in 1 John chapter 2, 18. He says, Children, speaking to the church, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. One of the questions that I have been getting a lot throughout this series, people emailing me, is, Todd, are we living in the last days? Are we now living in the last hour? And that's what John is saying here. The last days, the last hour. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering, Todd, are we living in the last hour of history? Are we living in the last days? And the answer to that is, yes, you are. In fact, you have been living in the last days since the day you were born. 
Scripture is very clear that when Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the Father, that there in such the last days in the end times begin. Whether you realize it or not, you were born into a world to where it's in its last and final hours. Now I know the big question that people have, but Todd, are we living in the, the last of the last of the last of the hour? I don't know. I don't know, but I do know this. I know that we are now 2,000 years closer to the second coming of Jesus. Whether we have another 20 years or two years or another 2,000 years, I don't know, but I know that we're 2,000 years closer. And he will come back. And so Jones says this. Jones says, hey, do you want to know? Do you want to know how to define whether or not you're living in the last days? And he says, hey, there's this antichrist that's coming, but you know what? There's antichrist, plural, that have come. You notice that? You have one that's singular. You have one that's plural. So let's keep reading. Let's keep reading and figure out what he's trying to say. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. And again, speaking of the Antichrist or Antichrist, who are they, what are they? Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Next scripture. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Folks, this is very sobering. When you read this, who or what is the Antichrist? What John is saying here, he's saying, listen, I don't care how good, how meaningful someone or some system may be. But anyone who does not confess or denies that Jesus is not from God is the spirit of Antichrist. He goes on. Next slide. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. This is sobering. And just some context here. What, what John is referring to, this, he's referring to a heresy. Some of you guys may be familiar with, with Gnostics. Gnostic teaching. He, he's, he's going against Gnostic teaching that had crept into the church. That was denying who Jesus was and, and the truth about who Jesus was. That he did not come from God. And so the Antichrist, for John, when he wrote that, took the form of this heresy that was going through the church at that time. But as you see this, it's very clear, it's very clear that John here, just like the beast, is saying that the Antichrist can be anyone or anything or any person that denies Jesus. Denies the truth of who Jesus is. Amen. So, 
who or what is the beast, who or what is the Antichrist. Again, I'm not saying, not saying like a lot of us have probably been taught that the beast and the Antichrist is some future person that is going to come onto the scene just before Jesus comes back. I'm not saying that can't happen. But I think as we've just seen, we can't just limit it to that. That the beast is a system or anyone or anything that seeks to oppose and destroy God's people and his church. And the Antichrist or Antichrists is anyone who, anybody who denies the truth of who Jesus is. So I'm, I'm going to stop right there this morning. And I want to end on a high note. Because we're going to get into a lot of spiritual warfare talk throughout this chapter. And I mentioned this last week. You know, folks, we're in a battle. We're in a war. We oftentimes don't see that. And who or what are we battling against? We are battling against this beast that is energized by Satan, that is energized by the devil and can take its form in all different types of shapes and ways and sizes and times and places. And one of the things that I hear this is this, is I know oftentimes we think, but wait a minute, I'm a Christian. Jesus conquered. Didn't Jesus defeat the devil at the cross? Scripture is very clear, very clear, yes, that when Jesus died on the cross, that he disarmed, you know, the, the enemy and utterly defeated him. But I know you can read this, a passage like this, and hear a message with what I shared this morning. Well, wait, well, that doesn't make sense. Is the devil defeated? If he is, then why does this stuff still happen in this time, in this place that we're in? Well, let me try to answer that with an analogy. How many of you have ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Right, what was the opening scene? What was it? War. It was war. It was D-Day. Right. Now, if you're a historian of World War II, historians will tell you that the Allied forces, when they stormed the beaches at Normandy, that they delivered a death blow. Germany and, 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 and you know the Nazis the, the, in a sense that day, that battle the D-Day, the war was over. War was won. But if you also know your history the war didn't end until really sometime later. After the Allied forces delivered that knockout blow to the Nazis, there was still a lot of fighting. There was still a lot of death and a lot of destruction between D-Day and the end of the war that was referred to as B-Day. Somebody just, did you just say what I mean? Somebody just say B-Day. Denise. So in similar fashion, when Jesus was on the cross, he delivered a death blow to the devil. The battle, in essence, was won. The enemy was defeated. But folks, the battle doesn't completely end until V-Day. 
for when Jesus returns. And we say this a lot in, in here in the vineyard, but it's that already and not yet. We live in that tension that we have already won. Jesus has already won the battle. Our enemy has already been defeated. That has already happened. But at the same time, there's still a part that's not yet. And in between the already and the not yet, in between D-Day and V-Day, there's still a battle. Amen. And folks, in Revelation, you're going to read again, Satan has nothing to lose. He's already defeated. So you read another portion where it talks about he comes to the earth with great wrath. Is he defeated? Yes, he is. But for a defeated enemy, he still kicks. And he's going to continue to kick and fight as much as he can. We win, but we need to know that we have a very real enemy who will fight against us and who will continue to fight until Jesus returns. And as we see, when we end all this, he's going to destroy the devil. He's going to destroy evil. He's going to destroy every opposition to his kingdom and his people just by the breath of his mouth. He doesn't have to fire a gun. He doesn't have to let off any nuclear bombs. Just the truth of who he is conquers his enemy. I know it's hard, but again, we're in a battle, and we win. Worship team comes up, let's stand. Heavenly Father, I just pray right now, as we look at this fascination, or fascinating portion of Revelation chapter 13, and we start to dissect our enemy, and what his tactics look like, and how he wages war, and what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. Even though he's a very real enemy, Father, I pray that you would give us discernment as your people. Help us to see, Father, whether it be a system, an ideal, anyone or anything that, that seeks to lead us and lead your people astray or to wage war against us, give us discernment. And Father, help us to remember that when we fight, again, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but that... We're fighting against dark forces and spiritual places and high places and Satan and, and, and his minions. Help us to realize that we're in a battle. And Father, help us to realize too that, that when Jesus was tempted, when Jesus was attacked by the devil out uh, in the desert when he was tempted for 40 days, he didn't challenge him to a fist fight. No, what did Jesus do in your son? That he, he spoke truth. He attacked the devil's lies. That's the main way that Satan attacks us and wages war against us is that he lies. He lies about who you are and what you're like, and he lies about who we are and who. So, Father, I just pray right now, some of us here today, if our enemy is, is really hitting us and attacking us, one, we should expect it. Because that's the time, that's the age that we're living in. None of us get out of this. We all are in this battle together. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to realize there's nothing wrong with us. 
They're, they're, you're not mad at us if we find ourselves in a, in a battle with our enemy. That's just a normal part of who we are and what we're going to face as God's people, that we fight spiritual battles against a very real enemy who set out to destroy us and to deceive us. And I just pray right now that you would help us again, wherever it is, wherever that battle is raging, first and foremost, I just pray for your presence to fill every one of us up, that you help, help us to realize that we are not in this battle alone. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You fight with us. And Father, I also pray that you would help us to take the authority that you have given us as your people. And I just pray right now, wherever the enemy is attacking in our lives, whether it be financially, whether it be physically, whether it be emotionally, wherever it is right now in Jesus' name, we just take authority and speak against our enemy in the name of Jesus. We command you, Satan, and his minions to leave God's people alone. Yes. Yes. And folks, you have the authority to do that. God has given you that authority. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to take the authority that you have given us to fight against spiritual and dark forces. And I also pray that you would help us, wherever it is that we're facing, just to hear the truth. The truth. Because, again, the main way, the main tactic of our enemy is to lie. So Holy Spirit, I just pray right now, whatever area of our lives that we need to hear truth, to hear your truth, and all truth comes from you. So whatever truth that we need to hear this morning from you, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would speak that truth to your people right now. And that we can lay a hold of that truth of who you are and who we are in you and the truth of the circumstances that we might face, we might be in. Help us to lay a hold of that truth and to anchor it. And as a way to dispel the lies of the enemy that wants to come in and deceive and destroy and to pull us away from you. So even though we face a battle here this morning and, and we're in a battle, there are battles to come, we are more than conquerors because you have conquered. You have overcome the world. And I just pray that as we sing this song, regardless of what circumstances and the intensity of the battle, I just pray that we can, we can hear these words of this song and remember that we're warriors. And even in the midst of the difficulty and the hardship, we are going to see a victory. There is a victory that is coming. And oh, what a day. Oh, what a day it's going to be. Help us not to forget that truth and to forget who we are. Help us not to forget who we are in you. And Lord, we love you and we thank you. And Holy Spirit, again, we invite you to move during this last song here in the sanctuary of Washington. We love you. We thank you. We pray. We ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.